Well, good morning. It is a joy to preach God's word this morning. My name is Clint Patronella, for any of you that I have not got to meet. And our family is planting a church in Waltham, just a few miles around on 95 from here. We close on a house this week and move in on Saturday. And so to see the Lord just charting our path has been um, such a joy and such a gift. We turn now our attention and our service to the words of God. Um, in His grace and His mercy, He has given them to us that we might know Him, that we might know how to look at the glory of God in a way that wouldn't burn us, but that would draw us in uh, to Him. Let me pray for our hearts and our ears uh, to really hone in and see all that God would have us see this morning. And so, Father, we do come to Your Word this morning. These words and acts are meant to produce life in us. They're meant to shape us and form us in every way so that we look like Jesus. I pray that your will would be done here this morning. Would you draw to the surface the sin in our life that so easily entangles us and trips us up? Lord, would you bring it out so that we might call it what it is, confess it, and have it die, that we might become more like your son? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Likely you remember these words. They carried the day in the trial of the century. And who could forget the image of OJ trying on the gloves as our nation took sides? The now infamous OJ trial captured the nation for 253 days on television. Did you know that the verdict was watched by more than 150 million people? And recently, I got to watch the ESPN documentary. Maybe you saw the five-part 30 for 30 documentary on OJ called OJ Made in America. And as I watched the, the documentary, I couldn't help but grieve as OJ's life took one bad turn after another. I mean, there was this downward spiral from greatness into the depths of despair. And today, no matter where you stand, guilty or not guilty, one thing became very clear to me as I watched the documentary. If he didn't do it, then truly he has a clear conscience about the whole matter. No matter what people think about it, his conscience is clear if he didn't do it. But if he did do it, then he has a calloused calloused conscience to lie and not confess to the double homicide. And the Bible gives us a ton of insight into our conscience, that little voice that you hear inside your head that helps us discern and parse out right from wrong. And in today's text, Acts 24, we're going to see two trials where both a clear and a callous conscience are on display. And so the question I want to look at as we look at our text today is, what makes the difference between a clear conscience and a calloused conscience. And from the text, we'll see this big idea emerge, that only Jesus recalibrates a calloused conscience into a clear conscience. And so as we start, I want to help set the stage for why uh, Paul is on trial. Let's look at how he was arrested. See, Paul arrived in Jerusalem, and when he got there, he went to the temple to worship. 
And as he did, Jews from Asia who were there for the Feast of Pentecost, they started stirring up a crowd and they started telling people that Paul was teaching everyone everywhere against the Jews. And they accused him of defiling the temple by bringing a Gentile into it. And what happened next is that a mob was frenzied. They grabbed Paul. They dragged him out in order to kill him. And as this frenzy and the ruckus started, Roman soldiers jump in to bring peace. And so they arrest Paul. And then a formal investigation starts that's led by a man named Claudius Lysias. He was the commanding officer of the Roman soldiers. In today's world, he'd probably be like the police chief. And so he starts this investigation. Meanwhile, the Jews that have been frenzied are growing impatient and they're thirsty for blood. And so what they do is they devise a plot to kill Paul while he's in custody. Just like a nice uh, political thriller, the plot is discovered and Lysias transfers Paul with 400 soldiers under the cover of night to Caesarea, where the head of the Judean government was. And with this military escort, he sends a letter to Felix, who's the governor, and he's kind of explaining all that has happened so far. And what he does, he says, the results of our investigation have found nothing wrong. You see, he believes that Paul has done nothing illegal. In his opinion, the whole thing really boils down to a a dispute about religious customs and laws. In fact, he would have released him, but for Paul's own safety as a Roman citizen, he has him transferred to Caesarea. And that helps us understand where we are in verse 1 for the first trial. Look with these words with me. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. Like many trials, it begins with the prosecution. In this case, the plaintiffs are Ananias and the Jewish elders. And they get a hired gun, a lawyer named Tertullus, to defend and plead their case. Now look with me at his opening statement in verse 2. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Now, I hope you heard that this opening statement is long on flattery and short on substance. You see, he's buttering up Felix with all of these platitudes and glad-handing and saying that he's brought all this peace and they're sweeping reforms throughout the land due to his great foresight. And everyone, as we go around, is just so grateful for your leadership and your public service. The problem with his opening statement is that if you look into the pages of history, none of this is even remotely true. History tells us that he was hated by his constituents. His rule was so brutal, and the corruption of his government was widely written about in the pages of history of that time. In fact, we're going to later find out that he was recalled from office due to his gross incompetence. Now, knowing what we see here in the opening statement, let's look at the charges that are brought against Paul in verse 5. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. 
You see, this first charge brought against him is a formal one called sedition, which is basically a form of treason. What they're saying is that he's going around throughout the, uh, the land and he's stirring up riots and leading a revolt against the established order that threatens the peace and order and rule of Rome. See, Rome had fought long and hard to bring peace to the empire and they guaranteed its citizens that peace of Rome throughout. Now, let's look at the second charge. They also said that he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The second charge could be summed up in the word sectarianism. So what Tertullus said is that he's a ringleader of this sect. You see, at the time, with all this political unrest, there's a ton of troublesome sectarian groups, these militant offshoots that are growing up out of Judaism, claiming Judaism as their heritage, but they're really nothing like Judaism. They've, they've kind of making a, a political statement and trying to get Rome out of their hair. And what the prosecution does is they lump Christianity into this troublesome bag of other groups so that they're guilty by association. You see, the equivalent charge would go something like this today. Those Nazarenes, they're just like ISIS. And so you take all of what you think about ISIS and then you transfer that to them. So they're guilty by association. They're radical terrorists that seek harm. That's what Tertullus is trying to argue here. Next, let's go to the third charge. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. See, this third charge brought against him is sacrilege. Remember, the allegation was that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple where a Gentile ought not go. And it took this place that is holy and sacred, and it defiled it. And Roman law gave the Jews special provision to uphold their temple laws. So Rome said, if your Jewish law demands prosecution and capital punishment, then we'll uphold that statute as well. See, these are serious charges brought against Paul. Even if one of them is convicted, the result is death. They're trying to make the case that Paul's like a contagious disease transmitting the sickness of disruption and dissension and revolution wherever he goes throughout the known world. He is a plague that must be stopped. If you remember from the pages of history in the 14th century, the bubonic plague, also known as Black Death, in just a few short years, it spread throughout Asia and Europe and uh, in Africa, killing an estimated 50 million people. What they're saying is Paul is like that. If you let him go, the devastation will be epic. And then the prosecution closes with these words. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So the prosecution rests its case. Have you noticed that they've brought no evidence against Paul? No eyewitness testimony. But the rhetoric is very clear. Felix, if you want to keep your job, then you need to get rid of of Paul. Now let's turn in the text to see Paul's defense. And when the Roman governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul hires no lawyer. In fact, Paul himself was trained in the law. And typically when a person defends himself, he has a fool for a client. But in this case, we'll see Paul skillfully argues his defense. So he starts with a brief and respectful opening. 
He says, you've been judge over the nation for many years. You've got experience with us, Felix. You should be able to hear and weigh and discern the facts of this case. Look at verse 11. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. You see, Paul starts to respond to that first charge of sedition. You see, he wasn't disputing with anyone, nor was he stirring up crowds in the synagogues or in the city. In fact, he was minding his own business. And Paul highlights the fact that the prosecution has not brought any eyewitness testimony or brought any evidence to prove any of their claims. If he was leading a riot and causing such a disturbance as they claim, don't you think there'd be witnesses? Don't you think there'd be evidence to suggest that? Look what he says in verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So now Paul turns to the second charge of sacrilege and says, look, I'll I'll make a confession. So everyone's ears begin to perk up. Okay, he's going to finally confess. Here we go. But this isn't a confession to crimes committed. Paul lays out a confession of faith. He says, it is true. I am a member of the way, but it's far from being a sect or a militant offshoot. You see, we do worship the God of our forefathers, and we do follow the law, and we do follow the teaching of the scriptures. And like many Jews that are here today, we believe that one day there will be a resurrection when God judges the just and the unjust. You see, what he's saying is our faith isn't new. This isn't a brand new thing. It's rooted in old promises, and they're now coming to fruition in Jesus. Look look with me at verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. You see, Paul's saying it's been about five or six years since I've even been in Jerusalem, and I came to bring my offering. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without crowd or tumult. You see, Paul says he didn't come to Jerusalem to cause trouble. He came to bring an offering and to worship. I mean, does that sound like the agenda of a terrorist? Far from being in the temple to cause a riot, he was there to purify himself. He was doing the opposite of defiling. Why would Paul bring a Gentile defiling the temple when his whole purpose is there to make himself clean? And it's at this point that Paul redirects his defense and he makes a powerful statement. Look with me at it. But some Jews from Asia, and then he remembers, wait a minute, They ought to be here before you and to make their accusation against me should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. You see, his real accusers, these Jews from Asia, they were absent from the trial. And Roman law called for a face-to-face confrontation between accusers and the accused, much like our law system today. You see, the ones who grabbed Paul, who supposedly saw him doing all these things, they didn't even bother to show up in court. They basically abandoned the charges. The prosecution has no primary witness. And so 
the only reasonable thing left to do is to drop the charges. And so Paul concludes by saying, the real reason they have me here is for my belief in the resurrection. Ultimately, Felix, this is a dispute about beliefs. This is kind of an internal dialogue. I've done nothing illegal. And in fact, Paul's remarks are the exact same as Claudius Lysias from the letter. You remember that letter? In his letter to Felix, he said that he found no criminal charges against Paul and that he thought the whole thing was really a dispute about religious matters. And so it's obvious from the hearing that no case can be made against Paul and that the charges should be dropped. At the end of the trial, Paul can say that he knows he's innocent and therefore he has a clear conscience. Look at verse 16. It kind of sums up this whole thing. He says, I always strive to take uh, pains to have a clear conscience, both towards God and man. You see, at the end of the trial, Paul could rest his case. He had argued clearly, he had argued winsomely, and he had done so with truth. He had a clear conscience. He didn't bend over for the false charges and just accept what wasn't true. He was clear about what he did believe. For Paul had come to know this that only Jesus recalibrates a callous conscience into a clear conscience. And we know from the book of Acts, and we've been studying it for quite some time now, that he had met Paul on the road to Damascus, and he had his life changed. You see, there was a time when Paul had a callous conscience. There was a time when Paul was uh, seeking the destruction of the way. There was a time when Paul was giving his oversight and his approval to the martyrdom of the early Christians. But Jesus had come in and changed his life. And now he's on trial for it. He's facing capital punishment. And you would think facing those kinds of charges that he'd be terrified. But what do we see, Paul? We see in Paul a man who's clear and calm. He has a clear conscience. No matter the outcome, Paul could say, my conscience is clear. So what happens? What's the verdict of the trial? Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So instead of a decision, guilty or not guilty, we get an adjournment. So why does he delay? Why doesn't he just make a decision? Why does he procrastinate? See, the reality is he doesn't need Lysias to come down to Caesarea He already knows that Lysias found no reason to charge him, right? The letter says it all. The delay here is a political move. You see, he knows that Paul's innocent under Roman law, but he also knows I've got an angry group of Jews out here and they're screaming for blood. So in order to keep the peace, he leaves Paul in prison. And so for Paul, justice delayed is justice denied. But even though he's denied justice, What's the one thing they can't take away from Paul? His clear conscience, right? So this trial shows a man with a clear conscience. Now let's pick up the story in verse 24 to see a man with a calloused conscience. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So what happens is while he's in custody, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, they send for Paul to have private meetings with him. Now, if you'll remember, Felix is not a righteous man by any standards. Not only did he rule with brutality and injustice, his personal life was a mess as well. 
See, after two failed marriages, he met Drusilla, who was 16 at the time, and married. And she was unhappy. And so history tells us uh, that she was very, very beautiful as well. So Felix wanted her for himself. And so he lured her in by promises of happiness and a fortune. And she left her husband and went with Felix. And if you look at the pages of history, you'll see that their, their family history is so full of affairs and deceit and sensuality, it rivals any daytime soap opera that you can find. And I mention all of this not to air their dirty laundry and not for us to look down on Felix and Drusilla. Because if you were to spend some time with me and look into my past and look into my heart, you would see the very same thing. You would see a trail of broken relationships. You would see trails of deceit and sensuality and wickedness. The reason I mention this is to tell you that Paul is about to talk to them about Jesus. He's about to talk to them about their sin and their need for forgiveness and the grace of salvation that's going to be offered to them in Christ Jesus. This becomes the scene of the second trial. You see, where the first was formal and in public, the second is going to be informal and in private. The first had everything to do with Roman law. This trial has everything to do with God's law. So how will they respond to the message of grace extended to them in Jesus Christ? Let's find out. Verse 25. Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Now, you remember... Uh, what we have here is a summary of what Paul told Luke about these conversations. From the text, we know that this happened over the course of two years. And Luke wasn't there. This is Paul having these inner uh, dial- these dialogues with Felix um, and Drusilla. And so he relayed to Luke what they had actually talked about. This word reasoned here means to have a dialogue. So they had these private conversations about Jesus. So this was a conversation that Luke kind of summarizes with three main topics. He says, we talked about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And these three words act as like a summary or a shorthand for him to talk about salvation. So let me unpack that for you. Here's what I mean. The first word, righteousness, is really shorthand for the topic of justification. In fact, in Greek, you could really translate those two words um, interchangeably. Justification simply means this, to be made right with God. You have to justify something that is crooked, that is out of alignment. You see, Paul shares with them how their lives that are out of line can be lined up rightly with God. See, in order for Paul to get to the good news of Jesus, he has to start with the bad news. The bad news is, in terms of righteousness, Felix and Drusilla you do not add up. But no one does. No one is righteous before God. None of us comes with a clean and clear and pure conscience. All of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would admit that we're sinners, that we fall short of the glory and the perfection of God. We sin in thought, we sin in word, and we sin in deed. That's all of us here. And every single one of us knows that. When we look in the mirror, none of us can say that I am perfect and righteous and holy. We live with this reality that we've not come under and lined up with the standard of God. And it becomes this ghost that haunts us no matter where we go. 
And Paul lays out the bad news in order to get to the good news of the gospel. In telling them about faith in Jesus, he tells them that the payment for your sins has already been paid. That Jesus had lived the life of righteousness that we could not live. And in our death, and in his death, he takes our unrighteousness and gives us his righteousness. So think about it like this. Your sin and my sin is a debt. It's a negative in your bank account. And not only do we live a life of accumulating debt, but we inherit the bank account of our first parents. And so we inherit this debt of humanity. We feel it from day one. And then we continue racking up more and more and more debt. But Jesus, when he was born, he lived a perfect life of righteousness. And instead of accumulating debt, he, stored, he, he credited righteousness, an unbelievable bank account full of righteousness. And for those who come to faith in him, for those who believe that that actually happened in faith, he takes your account of debt and he gives you his credit of righteousness. It's an act of unbelievable generosity that can only be explained by amazing love. If you try any other way to explain it, nothing will do. Why would he do that? The only explanation is love. And Paul would have told them that when you believe that, and when that sinks down deep into your soul, it changes you. It changes you from the inside out. And now you desire to live a life of self-control. And the Spirit of God starts working in your life so that new fruit springs forth. This is the sanctified life. This is the life that is set apart and holy. And Paul summarizes it in this word, self-control. He says the life that is changed by God will be marked and characterized by self-control. And then Paul would have talked to them about coming judgment. He says, judgment comes for us all. You can feel Felix starting to have his heart pound. See, for those who've been forgiven and accepted, the punishment that you should receive has been paid for by Jesus. And so all that's left for you to receive is life and glory of, uh, of the resurrection. So instead of death, what we deserve, we get life. This is the message of the gospel that Paul would have given to Felix and Drusilla. So how did they respond? It says that Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. And when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Grace and love are extended to Felix and Drusilla. And their response is one of fear and alarm. Why? Because their, ca- their consciences are calloused. You see, they're in a position of power and control. If anyone should be terrified in the room, it should be Paul. But they're the ones who respond in fear. You see, when we hear about coming judgment, for those who feel guilt, fear is a natural response because we fear facing that kind of judgment. But their consciences are so calloused and so hard, instead of responding with reckless abandon to the good news of the gospel, they respond in fear. See, it's not that they're unmoved by the message. It's just that they're moved in the wrong direction. They should be moved towards that kind of grace, but they run the opposite direction. You see, at the point of pain, for Felix to have to admit that he was a sinner, to admit that he uh, was fearful, to admit that he was wrong, terrified him. So he tells him to go away. 
And he says, when I want to, I'll call you in. You see, Felix believes the lie that he has all the time in the world. He says, when it's convenient for me, I'll call you back up. And we know from the text that Felix hoped he would get a bribe. Did you remember hearing that? At some time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. This just further proves Felix's calloused heart. See, he's unwilling to take a stand for justice and acquit Paul for fear of the Jews. And at the same time, he's hoping to work the system from both angles to fill his pocket. Isn't that the definition of a calloused heart? And he believes the lie that he's in control and that he'll have whatever opportunity he wants to call Paul in and discuss these matters. And he's procrastinated justice in Paul's life. And now, with the matter of eternal significance, he's procrastinating again. But as each conversation ended, his conscience grew more and more hardened to the gospel. The Bible tells us that when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. You see, the real tragedy of this case is not that Paul had to stay in prison. The real tragedy of this case is that Felix perpetually postponed the far more serious matter of his decision about Christ. And history tells us these meetings come to an end. See, Felix thought he had all the time in the world, right? But a new emperor comes to power, looks over the land and says, let's get that joker Felix out of here. That guy is horrible at his job. He has no idea what he's doing. And he recalls him from Rome. And if you look into the pages of history, we find that Drusilla and her son were in Pompeii in AD 79. Anyone remember what happens in AD 79? Mount Vesuvius erupts and they died in that eruption. They were out having a good time at a party. They thought they had the world before them and in an instant, their life was taken. And with the closing of Acts 24, we don't find out anything more about Felix. And eventually, the pages of history will turn and Felix is just a a, a couple sentences on the pages. And ultimately, we know that he passed from this life. See, Felix was a judge who feared facing judgment himself. But we know that when he died, He faced the judge. And we're left with this big question mark on their life regarding Felix and Drusilla. I mean, did they ever come to faith in Jesus? Did they ever respond to the extravagant love of grace and salvation offered to them in Jesus Christ? The reality is that we just don't know. Only Jesus can recalibrate a callous conscience into a clear conscience. And so as we end today... I believe that these two trials were given to us as an example. You see, on the one hand, we have Paul, who had a clear conscience as he defends himself, and he did lift up Jesus with poise and power. On the other hand, we have Felix, who takes the coward's way out with Paul. He doesn't acquit. He doesn't convict. He simply delays the the hearing um, perpetually into eternity, right? And now Felix is put on the dock in the trial of his life. You see, there's a surprising turn of events in the story where the judge himself becomes judged. And I found it remarkable that Paul, in those hearings and in those private conversations, he could have withheld the gospel of grace to Felix, right? He could have stored up anger towards him, denying him justice, and just uh, uh, placated Felix. But what does he do? 
at great cost to himself. Without, he doesn't defend his case. He doesn't try to get a private hearing with him. He shares the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet Felix remains hardened. And when the gospel starts to move him, he shuts down. Opportunity passes and he remains calloused. So what can we draw away with today? The first thing is this, that we must settle what Felix left unsettled. If you have not settled where you stand with Jesus, do not believe the lie that you have all eternity and all the days to do so, for our lives can be taken at any moment. See, we can't talk about calibrating our conscience and learning how to uh, discern right from wrong in the days ahead if we reject Jesus. We can't calibrate our conscience to Jesus if we're at the same time rejecting Jesus. So my question is, if you were to stand before the bar of God's judgment right now, do you stand with a clear conscience? God will judge justly. And on that day, he will not postpone judgment, nor will he accept a bribe. And on that day, we will all give an account for our life. So how will you stand? Will you stand with a clear conscience? This is the question we must all settle and answer while today is still called today. When you meet God, and we will all meet him, will he be the father who welcomes you into his arms of love? Or when you meet God, will you meet him as judge? How will you stand on that day? The second thing we can walk away with today is how we can calibrate our conscience to the standard of Jesus. If you pay any attention to the headlines and the news, you know that uh, the, the questions that we have to answer today are difficult, right? As legislation is being passed and as the moral temperature of our country changes, there's a lot of decisions that Christians are faced with and how we're going to answer those kinds of questions. You see, our conscience is a gift from God to help us discern between right and wrong. And the way we calibrate that conscience is by lining up our definitions of right and wrong with Jesus. He is the standard. He is the truth. So in the same way that if your clock is off or a scale is off, you've got to calibrate it to something, right? You've got to find what is the actual time and adjust your clock accordingly. If the scale is off, you've got to find zero and balance it out. You have to calibrate your conscience to something. And if you don't align it with the standard of God's word, it will not function properly. If you align your conscience with what the world says is right and wrong, you're going to be misaligned. You see, our conscience is fallible. It can be, and it is affected by sin. We can get things wrong. We can adamantly believe that something is right, when in reality, it's wrong. The sincerity of your belief doesn't make it right. What makes it right is if it's lined up with what is actually object and objectively true. So how do you calibrate that? It has to be informed by God's word so that it functions properly. And when it's lined up rightly, your conscience is a powerful gift from God to help you discern right and wrong and to keep you from evil. But the conscience will not calibrate itself. Just like a broken clock or a clock, that it, it, it won't align itself up right. This will take a grace-driven, spirit-led work, Seven Mile. We have to have regular rhythms in our life where we place ourselves under the faucet of God's grace so that we can get drenched 
with his truth. So that means regular attendance and, and, and participation and gathered worship is essential. Sitting under the preach word is so crucial and critical to, uh, to our consciences being lined up correctly. That's why we stress gospel communities and DNA groups. And this means also regular rhythms in your own life for study of scripture so that we can take our misaligned conscience and line it up with the standard of God's word. So I want to end with just a couple words of practical direction. It's kind of summed up in the words, start small, but start now. You see, procrastination is a direct enemy to calibrating our conscience. I mean, didn't we see this directly in the text today that that Felix always was procrastinating, delaying doing the right thing? See, the longer we wait, the harder it is to get aligned with Jesus. It's like wheels on your car. If they're out of alignment, waiting doesn't fix them. It only makes the problem worse. I remember when I was in seminary, I started drifting from the Lord. You see, it was this weird paradox. I was growing in all this knowledge and insight and depth of truth about God. But instead of softening my heart, it really just inflated my pride and my ego. And I started to get this hard heart and a callous conscience. I mean, there was points where I was able to rationalize just about anything. And I created patterns of deceit and double living that still haunt me today when I think about the things that I did. And I knew deep down that I was drifting. But I believed the lie that I would get right with God tomorrow. I knew that there would come a point where I needed to line my life up with God. But I said, I'll do it tomorrow. And I wasted years of closeness with God and developed many bad habits that would take years to realign. Do we come week after week hearing God's word, hearing grace, hearing truth, and putting it off to tomorrow? Procrastinating on what God is calling us to give up and to turn away from will not lead to a clear conscience, but it will lead to callousing. Your, your heart will grow hard. And the longer we're able to silence the voice of God, the more hardened we become. And so I want to ask you this. What is the day this week, this week, where you're going to set aside some time for prayer and reading in God's word? You have to make time for that. You've got to set that day. Don't leave here today without saying, this is the day, this is the time. And if you're going, well, I don't know what to read, I'm going to tell you. Psalm 139. At the very end, there's a prayer that says, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any grievous way and lead me in the way everlasting. See, that's a prayer that is asking God to speak and tell us where we are off, the things in our life that need to be realigned. So you have to start now, but it's okay to start small. Here's what I mean. God gives us grace to be works in progress. Amen? He is not asking you this week to do the whole work of sanctification in your life this week. I mean, if God were even to reveal all of our sin in one moment, it would so overwhelm us that we'd be down in the pits of despair. What I want you to do this week is to pick one thing. Pray and ask God to give one thing, one area of your life that you can start bringing under submission and to align it up with Scripture. And I believe if we will start now and start small, he will guide us on that journey. Let me pray. 
Father, you are so gracious to us. You have extended life to us in the Son. Lord, I pray that we would not turn away, but we would lean into that grace, that we would lean into Jesus. For there's love and acceptance there. There's life everlasting there. It's okay to be honest there. Father, I pray for any here who've not settled that big question that they would do so today, while there is still today. And Father, I pray that you would give us all the gift of a clear conscience. We don't have to hide. You've given us your word shown on display in the life of Jesus Christ to line up our conscience. Help us do that, Lord. Lord, help us to be resolute in picking out a day this week where we'll spend time talking to you and asking, where would you have us work? Where would you, lay, where would you have us put things to death and line up our conscience rightly? Spirit, speak to us in those times. Give us the courage to do so, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.